Chapter Four, Part One of the Life of Cicero, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philippa Jevons. The Life of Cicero, Volume One, by Anthony Trollope. Chapter Four: His Early Pleadings, Part One. Sextus Roscius Amerinus, His Income. Side note. B.C. 80, Aetat 27. We now come to the beginning of the work of Cicero's life. This at first consisted in his employment as an advocate, from which he gradually rose into public or political occupation, as so often happens with a successful barrister in our time. We do not know with absolute certainty even in what year Cicero began his pleadings, or in what cause. It may probably have been in 81 B.C. when he was twenty-five, or in his twenty-sixth year. Of the pleadings of which we know the particulars, that in the defence of Sextus Roscius Amerinus, which took place undoubtedly in the year 80 B.C., eight at twenty-seven, was probably the earliest. As to that, we have his speech nearly entire, as we have also one for Publius Quintius, which has generally been printed first among the orator's works. It has, however, I think, been made clear that that spoken for Sextus Roscius came before it. It is certain that there had been others before either of them. In that for Sextus he says that he had never spoken before in any public cause such as was the accusation in which he was now engaged, from which the inference has to be made that he had been engaged in private causes, and in that for Quintius he declares that there was wanting to him in that matter an aid which he had been accustomed to enjoy in others. No doubt he had tried his prentice hand in cases of less importance. That of these two the defence of Sextus Roscius came first is also to be found in his own words. More than once, in pleading for Quintius, he speaks of the proscriptions and confiscations of Sulla as evils then some time past. These were brought nominally to a close in June 81, but it has been supposed by those who have placed this oration first that it was spoken in that very year. This seems to have been impossible. I am most unwilling, says he, to call to mind that subject, the very memory of which should be wiped out from our thoughts. When the tone of the two speeches is compared, it will become evident that that for Sextus Roscius was spoken the first. It was, as I have said, spoken in his twenty-seventh year, B.C. 80, the year after the prescription lists had been closed, when Sulla was still dictator, and when the sales of confiscated goods, though no longer legal, were still carried on under assumed authority. As to such violation of Sulla's own enactment, Cicero excuses the dictator in this very speech, likening him to great Jove the Thunderer, even Jupiter Optimus Maximus, as he is, whose nod the heavens, the earth, and seas obey, even he cannot so look after his numerous affairs, but that the winds and the storms will be too strong sometimes, or the heat too great, or the cold too bitter. If so, how can we wonder that Sulla, who has to rule the state, to govern, in fact, the world, should not be able himself to see to everything? Jove probably found it convenient not to see many things. Such must certainly have been the case with Sulla. I will venture, as other biographers have done before, to tell the story of Sextus Roscius of Ameria at some length, because it is in itself a tale of powerful romance, mysterious, grim, betraying guilt of the deepest dye, misery most profound, and audacity unparalleled, 
because, in a word, it is as interesting as any novel that modern fiction has produced. And also, I will tell it, because it lets in a flood of light upon the condition of Rome at the time. Our hair is made to stand on end when we remember that men had to pick their steps in such a state as this, and to live if it were possible, and, if not, then to be ready to die. We come in upon the fag-end of the prescription, and see not the bloody wreath of Sulla as he triumphed on his Marian foes, not the cruel persecution of the ruler determined to establish his order of things by slaughtering every foe, but the necessary accompaniments of such ruthless deeds, those attendant villainies, for which the Jupiter Optimus Maximus of the day had neither ears nor eyes. If in history we can ever get a glimpse at the real life of the people, it is always more interesting than any account of the great facts, however grand. The calends of June had been fixed by Sulla as the day on which the slaughter legalised by the prescriptions should cease. In the September following, an old gentleman named Sextus Roscius was murdered in the streets of Rome as he was going home from supper one night, attended by two slaves. By whom he was murdered, probably more than one or two knew then, but nobody knows now. He was a man of reputation, well acquainted with the Metellises and Messalas of the day, and passing rich. His name had been down on no prescription list, for he had been a friend of Sulla's friends. He was supposed, when he was murdered, to be worth about six million of sesterces, or something between fifty and sixty thousand pounds of our money. Though there was at that time much money in Rome, this amounted to wealth, and though we cannot say who murdered the man, we may feel sure that he was murdered for his money. Immediately on his death his chattels were seized and sold, or divided probably without being sold, including his slaves, in whom, as with every rich Roman, much of his wealth was invested, and his landed estates, his farms, of which he had many, were also divided. As to the actual way in which this was done, we are left much in the dark. Had the name of Sextus Roscius been on one of the lists, even though the list would then have been out of date, we could have understood that it should have been so. Jupiter Optimus Maximus could not see everything, and great advantages were taken. We must only suppose that things were so much out of order that they who had been accustomed to seize upon the goods of the proscribed were able to stretch their hands so as to grasp almost anything that came in their way. They could no longer procure a rich man's name to be put down on the list, but they could pretend that it had been put down. At any rate, certain persons seized and divided the chattels of the murdered man as though he had been proscribed. Old Roscius, when he was killed, had one son, of whom we are told that he lived always in the country at Ameria, looking after his father's farms, never visiting the capital, which was distant from Ameria, something under fifty miles, a rough, uncouth, and probably honest man, one, at any rate, to whom the ways of the city were unknown, and who must have been but partially acquainted with the doings of the time. As we read the story, we feel that very much depends on the character of this man, and we are aware that our only description of him comes from his own advocate. Cicero would probably say much which, though beyond the truth, could not be absolutely refuted, but would state as facts nothing that was absolutely false. Cicero describes him as a middle-aged man who never left his farm, doing his duty well by his father, as whose agent he acted on the land, a simple, unambitious, ignorant man, to whom one's sympathies are due rather than our antipathy, because of his devotion to agriculture. He was now accused of having murdered his father. 
The accusation was conducted by one Erucius, who, in his opening speech, the speech made before that by Cicero, had evidently spoken ill of rural employments. Then Cicero reminds him, and the judges and the court, how greatly agriculture had been honoured in the old days, when consuls were taken from the ploughs. The imagination, however, of the reader pictures to itself a man who could hardly have been a consul at any time, one silent, lonely, uncouth, and altogether separate from the pleasant intercourses of life. Erucius had declared of him that he never took part in any festivity. Cicero uses this to show that he was not likely to have been tempted by luxury to violence. Old Roscius had had two sons, of whom he had kept one with him in Rome, the one probably whose society had been dearest to him. He, however, had died, and our Roscius, Sextus Roscius Amerinus, as he came to be called when he was made famous by the murder, was left on one of the farms down in the country. The accusation would probably not have been made, had he not been known to be a man sullen, silent, rough, and unpopular, as to whom such a murder might be supposed to be credible. Why should any accusation have been made, unless there was clear evidence as to guilt? That is the first question which presents itself. This son received no benefit from his father's death. He had, in fact, been absolutely beggared by it, had lost the farm, the farming utensils, every slave in the place, all of which had belonged to his father and not to himself. They had been taken and divided, taken by persons called sectores, informers or sequestrators, who took possession of and sold, or did not sell, confiscated goods. Such men, in this case, had pounced down upon the goods of the murdered man at once, and swallowed them all up, not leaving an acre or a slave to our Roscius. Cicero tells us who divided the spoil among them. There were two other Roscius's, distant relatives probably, both named Titus. Titus Roscius Magnus, who sojourned in Rome, and who seems to have exercised the trade of informer and assassin during the prescriptions, and Titus Roscius Capito, who, when at home, lived at Ameria, but of whom Cicero tells us that he had become an apt pupil of the other during this affair. They had got large shares, but they had shared also with one Chrysogonus, the freedman and favourite of Sulla, who did the dirty work for Jupiter Optimus Maximus when Jupiter Optimus Maximus had not time to do it himself. We presume that Chrysogonus had the greater part of the plunder. As to Capito, the apt pupil, we are told again and again that he got three farms for himself. Again, it is necessary to say that all these facts come from Cicero, who, in accordance with the authorised practice of barristers, would scruple at saying nothing which he found in his instructions. How instructions were conveyed to an advocate in those days we do not quite know. There was no system of attorneys. But the story was probably made out for the patronus or advocate by an underling, and in some way prepared for him. That which was thus prepared he exaggerated, as the case might seem to require. It has to be understood of Cicero that he possessed great art, and, no doubt, great audacity in such exaggeration, in regard to which we should certainly not bear very heavily upon him now, unless we are prepared to bear more heavily upon those who do the same thing in our own enlightened days. But Cicero, even as a young man, knew his business much too well to put forward statements which could be disproved. The accusation came first, then the speech in defence, after that the evidence which was offered only on the side of the accuser, and which was subject to cross-examination. Cicero would have no opportunity of producing evidence. He was thus exempted from the necessity of proving his statements, 
but was subject to have them all disproved. I think we may take it for granted that the property of the murdered man was divided as he tells us. If that was so, why should any accusation have been made? Our Sextus seems to have been too much crushed by the dangers of his position to have attempted to get back any part of his father's wealth. He had betaken himself to the protection of a certain noble lady, one Metella, whose family had been his father's friends, and by her and her friends the defence was no doubt managed. "'You have my farms,' he is made to say by his advocate. "'I live on the charity of another. I abandon everything because I am placid by nature, and because it must be so. My house, which is closed to me, is open to you. I endure it. You have possessed yourself of my whole establishment. I have not one single slave.' I suffer all this, and feel that I must suffer it. What do you want more? Why do you persecute me further? In what do you think that I shall hurt you? How do I interfere with you? In what do I oppose you? Is it your wish to kill a man for the sake of plunder? You have your plunder. If for the sake of hatred, what hatred can you feel against him of whose land you have taken possession before you had even known him?' Of all this, which is the advocate's appeal to pity, we may believe as little as we please. Cicero is addressing the judge, and desires only an acquittal. But the argument shows that no overt act in quest of restitution had as yet been made. Nevertheless, Chrysogonus feared such action, and had arranged with the two Tituses that something should be done to prevent it. What are we to think of the condition of a city in which not only could a man be murdered for his wealth walking home from supper, that indeed might happen in London if there existed the means of getting at the man's money when the man was dead, but in which such a plot could be concerted in order that the robbery might be consummated? We have murdered the man and taken his money under the false plea that his goods had been confiscated. Friends, we find, are interfering, these metellers and metelluses, probably, There is a son who is the natural heir. Let us say that he killed his own father. The courts of law, which have only just been reopened since the dear days of prescription, disorder, and confiscation, will hardly yet be alert enough to acquit a man in opposition to the dictator's favourite. Let us get him convicted, and as a parricide, sewed up alive in a bag and thrown in the river, as some of us have perhaps seen cats drowned, for such was the punishment, and then he at least will not disturb us. It must have been thus that the plot was arranged. It was a plot so foul that nothing could be fouler, but not the less was it carried out persistently with the knowledge and the assistance of many. Erucius, the accuser, who seems to have been put forward on the part of Chrysogonus, asserted that the man had caused his father to be murdered because of hatred. The father was going to disinherit the son, and therefore the son murdered the father. In this there might have been some probability, had there been any evidence of such an intention on the father's part, but there was none. Cicero declares that the father had never thought of disinheriting his son. There had been no quarrel, no hatred. This had been assumed as a reason, falsely. There was in fact no cause for such a deed, nor was it possible that the son should have done it. The father was killed in Rome, when, as was evident, the son was fifty miles off. He never left his farm." Erucius, the accuser, had said, and had said truly, that Rome was full of murderers. But who was the most likely to have employed such a person? This rough husbandman, who had no intercourse with Rome, who knew no one there, who knew little of Roman ways, who had nothing to get by the murder when committed, 
or they who had long been concerned with murderers, who knew Rome, and who were now found to have the property in their hands. The two slaves who had been with the old man when he was killed, surely they might tell something. Here there comes out incidentally the fact that slaves, when they were examined as witnesses, were tortured quite as a matter of course, so that their evidence might be extracted. This is spoken of with no horror by Cicero, nor, as far as I can remember, by other Roman writers. It was regarded as an established rule of life that a slave, if brought into a court of law, should be made to tell the truth by such appliances. This was so common that one is tempted to hope and almost to suppose that the question was not ordinarily administered with circumstances of extreme cruelty. We hear, indeed, of slaves having their liberty given them, in order that, being free, they may not be forced by torture to tell the truth. But had the cruelty been of the nature described by Scott in Old Mortality, when the poor preacher's limbs were mangled, I think we should have heard more of it. Nor was the torture always applied, but only when the expected evidence was not otherwise forthcoming. Cicero explains in the little dialogue given below how the thing was carried on. You had better tell the truth now, my friend. Was it so-and-so? The slave knows that if he says it was so, there is the cross for him, or the little horse, but that if he will say the contrary, he will save his joints from racking. And yet the evidence went for what it was worth. In this case of Roscius, there had certainly been two slaves present, but Cicero, who as counsel for the defence could call no witnesses, had not the power to bring them into court. Nor could slaves have been made to give evidence against their masters. These slaves, who had belonged to the murdered man, were now the property either of Chrysogonus or of the two Tituses. There was no getting at their evidence but by permission of their masters, and this was withheld. Cicero demands that they shall be produced, knowing that the demand will have no effect. The man here, he says, pointing to the accused, asks for it, prays for it. What will you do in this case? Why do you refuse? By this time the reader is brought to feel that the accused person cannot possibly have been guilty, and if the reader, how much more the hearer. Then Cicero goes on to show who, in truth, were guilty. Doubt now, if you can, judges, by whom Roscius was killed, whether by him who, by his father's death, is plunged into poverty and trouble, who was forbidden even to investigate the truth, or by those who are afraid of real evidence, who themselves possess the plunder, who live in the midst of murder and on the proceeds of murder. Then he addresses one of the Tituses, Titus Magnus, who seems to have been sitting in the court, and who is rebuked for his impudence in doing so. Who can doubt who was the murderer? You, who have got all the plunder, or this man who has lost everything? But if it be added to this that you were a pauper before, that you have been known as a greedy fellow, as a daredevil, as the avowed enemy of him who has been killed, then need one ask what has brought you to do such a deed as this. He next tells what took place, as far as it was known, immediately after the murder. The man had been killed coming home from supper, in September, after it was dark, say at eight or nine o'clock, and the fact was known in Ameria before dawn. Travelling was not then very quick, but a messenger, one Malleus Glaucia, a man on very close terms with Titus Magnus, was sent down at once in a light gig to travel through the night and take the information to Titus Capito. Why was all this hurry? 
How did Glaukir hear of the murder so quickly? What cause to travel all through the night? Why was it necessary that Capito should know all about it at once? I cannot think, says Cicero, only that I see that Capito has got three of the farms out of the thirteen which the murdered man owned. But Capito is to be produced as a witness, and Cicero gives us to understand what sort of cross-examination he will have to undergo. In all this the reader has to imagine much, and to come to conclusions as to facts of which he has no evidence. When that hurried messenger was sent, there was probably no idea of accusing the son. The two real contrivers of the murder would have been more on their guard had they intended such a course. It had been conceived that when the man was dead and his goods seized, the fear of Sulla's favourite, the still customary dread of the horrors of the time, would cause the son to shrink from inquiry. Hitherto, when men had been killed and their goods taken, even if the killing and the taking had not been done strictly in accordance with Sulla's ordinance, it had been found safer to be silent and to endure. But this poor wretch, Sextus, had friends in Rome, friends who were friends of Sulla, of whom Chrysogonus and the Titus's had probably not bethought themselves. When it came to pass that more stir was made than they had expected, then the accusation became necessary. But in order to obtain the needed official support and aid, Chrysogonus must be sought. Sulla was then at Volaterra, in Etruria, perhaps a hundred and fifty miles northwest from Rome, and with him was his favourite Chrysogonus. In four days from the time of this murder, the news was carried thither, and, so Cicero states, by the same messenger, by Glaucia, who had taken it to Ameria. Chrysogonus immediately saw to the selling of the goods, and from this Cicero implies that Chrysogonus and the two Tituses were in partnership. But it seems that when the fact of the death of old Roscius was known at Ameria, in which place he was an occasional resident himself, and the most conspicuous man in the place, the inhabitants, struck with horror, determined to send a deputation to Sulla. Something of what was being done with their townsman's property was probably known, and there seems to have been a desire for justice. Ten townsmen were chosen to go to Sulla and beg that he would personally look into the matter. Here again we are very much in the dark, because this very Capito, to whom these farms were allotted as his share, was not only chosen to be one of the ten, but actually became their spokesman and their manager. The great object was to keep Sulla himself in the dark, and this Capito managed to do by the aid of Chrysogonus. None of the ten were allowed to see Sulla. They are hoaxed into believing that Chrysogonus himself will look to it, and so they go back to Ameria, having achieved nothing. We are tempted to believe that the deputation was a false deputation, each of whom probably had his little share, so that in this way there might be an appearance of justice. If it was so, Cicero has not chosen to tell that part of the story, having, no doubt, some good advocate's reason for omitting it. So far the matter had gone with the Tituses, and with Chrysogonus, who had got his lion's share. Our poor Roscius, the victim, did at first abandon his property, and allow himself to be awed into silence. We cannot but think that he was a poor creature, and can fancy that he had lived a wretched life during all the murders of the Sullen prescriptions. But in his abject misery he had found his way up among the great friends of his family at Rome, and had there been charged with the parricide, because Chrysogonus and the Tituses began to be afraid of what these great friends might do. This is the story as Cicero has been able to tell it in his speech. 
Beyond that, we only know that the man was acquitted. Whether he got back part of his father's property, there is nothing to inform us. Whether further inquiry was made as to the murder, whether evil befell those two Tituses, or Chrysogonus was made to disgorge, there has been no one to inform us. The matter was of little importance in Rome, where murders and organised robberies of the kind were the common incidents of everyday life. History would have meddled with nothing so ordinary, had it not happened that the case fell into the hands of a man so great a master of his language, that it has been worth the while of ages to perpetuate the speech which he made in the matter. But the story, as a story of Roman life, is interesting, and it gives a slight aid to history in explaining the condition of things which Sulla had produced. The attack upon Chrysogonus is bold, and cannot but have been offensive to Sulla, though Sulla is by name absolved from immediate blame. Chrysogonus himself, the favourite, he does not spare, saying words so bitter of tone that one would think that the judges, Sulla's judges, would have stopped him had they been able. Putting aside Sextus Roscius, he says, I demand, first of all, why the goods of an esteemed citizen were sold, then why have the goods been sold of one who had not himself been proscribed, and who had not been killed while defending Sulla's enemies? It is against those only that the law is made. Then I demand why they were sold when the legal day for such sales had passed, and why they were sold for such a trifle. Then he gives us a picture of Chrysogonus flaunting down the streets. You have seen him, judges, how, his locks combed and perfumed, he swims along the forum. He, a freedman, with a crowd of Roman citizens at his heels, that all may see that he thinks himself inferior to none. The only happy man of the day, the only one with any power in his hands. This trial was, as has been said, a causa publica, a criminal accusation of such importance as to demand that it should be tried before a full bench of judges. Of these the number would be uncertain, but they were probably above fifty. The praetor of the day, the praetor to whom by lot had fallen for that year that particular duty, presided, and the judges all sat around him. Their duty seems to have consisted in listening to the pleadings and then in voting. Each judge could vote guilty, acquitted, or not proven, as they do in Scotland. They were in fact jurymen rather than judges. It does not seem that any amount of legal law was looked for specially in the judges, who at different periods had been taken from various orders of the citizens, but who at this moment, by a special law enacted by Sulla, were selected only from the senators. We have ample evidence that at this period the judges in Rome were most corrupt. They were tainted by a double corruption, that of standing by their order instead of standing by the public, each man among them feeling that his turn to be accused might come, and that also of taking direct bribes. Cicero on various occasions, on this, for instance, and notably in the trial of Verres, to which we shall come soon, felt very strongly that his only means of getting a true verdict from the majority of judges was to frighten them into temporary honesty by the magnitude of the occasion. If a trial could be slurred through with indifferent advocates, with nothing to create public notice, with no efforts of genius to attract admiration and a large attendance and consequent sympathy, the judgment would, as a matter of course, be bought. In such a case as this of Sextus Roscius, the poor wretch would be condemned, sewn up in his bag, and thrown into the sea. A portion of the plunder would be divided among the judges, 
and nothing further would be said about it. But if an orator could achieve for himself such a reputation that the world would come and listen to him, if he could so speak that Rome should be made to talk about the trial, then might the judges be frightened into a true verdict. It may be understood, therefore, of what importance it was to obtain the services of a Cicero or of a Hortensius, who was unrivalled at the Roman bar when Cicero began to plead. End of chapter 4, part 1